A couple of weeks back, we had Robert Pandya from Give a Shift on the show talking about the inability of the motorcycle industry to attract young riders. Well, today we have a glimmer of hope in a fellow that is only 22 years old and traveling the world on his Honda CRF 250. When he was back in high school, Ben King crashed a car, almost killing himself and a couple of his close friends. And that crash changed how he looked at the world around him. It was a turning point for Ben. And what he decided to do about it shocked his family and friends. That's coming up on this episode. I'm Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. Stay with us. we got a good one for you. Max BMW Motorcycles has been outfitting adventure riders since 2002. 45,000 parts and accessories available online and ready to ship to your door at maxbmw.com. And you can sign up for their e-rider newsletter too. It's free. maxbmw.com. That's maxbmw.com. Green Chili Adventure Gear offers American-made, heavy-duty, innovative luggage systems for all types of motorcycles. Turn any bag into motorcycle luggage with this unique strapping system that's easy to use and switch from one bike to another. And of course, Green Chili Adventure Gear is all tested in extreme weather and terrain to withstand the abuse of adventure riding, which has gained them a top reputation for tough, reliable gear. www.greenchiliadv.com That's www.greenchiliadv.com Hi, I'm Sam Manicum. Nick Sanders. Terry Borden. Sandy Borden. Jack Borden. Graham Field. Dustin Vince. Jason Spafford. Lisa Murray. David Peterson. Rachel. Ed March. Glenn Hitstead. Dr. Gregory W. Crazy. Bar. Michelle Lampier. Tiffany Coates. Herbert Schlag. Zoe Cannell. Nathan Millward. Graham Hoskins. Joe Ruff. Jeremy Krieger. Simon Thomas. Lisa Thomas. Simon Pavey. Matt Johnson. Robert Wick. Seth Simon. Elizabeth Martin. Carol DeBell. And you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. Best Rest Products is home of the Cycle Pump Tire Inflator, Tire and Bead Breaker, Easy Air Tire Gauge, and other adventure motorcycle gear. The Cycle Pump runs right off your bike's electrical system. It'll inflate your flat tire in less than three minutes. It's made in the USA, and it comes with a lifetime warranty. And Motorcycle Consumer News Magazine just chose the Cycle Pump as their top pick in a compressor shakedown. Also, Best Rest is a North American distributor for Googletech filters, the filters that should be on your bike. Visit them at www.cyclepump.com. That's www.cyclepump.com. <laughs> The MotoBreeze chain oiler is powered by wind pressure that automatically adjusts for speed. No electrical or vacuum connections. It delivers oil to your chain with a felt pad that's mounted on your swing arm, which eliminates the problems of exposed nozzles near your sprockets. Get more miles from your chain and sprockets and forget about the messy spray oil. www.motobreeze.com. That's two eyes in there. www.motobreeze.com. Okay. Hello, I am Ben King. I am 22 years old uh, from London uh, and I'm currently unemployed uh, as I'm riding my Honda CRF250 motorcycle around the world. Ben, welcome to Adventure Rider Radio. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. Well, right now you're, you're holed up in Tehran, but that's where I'm going to start with this because um, you've had a, a bit of an issue. You, you, you got a broken arm, possibly. <laughs> yes, possibly. And it's actually, I mean, I probably shouldn't find this funny, but the whole thing is hilarious um, because, I mean, I've been on the road now for 10 months or so uh, since London. And I've, I've been through the crazy winter in the Balkans, um, made it down to the Syrian-Iraq border um, with no issues at all. I then went through the mountains in Georgia and then the deserts of Iran. And I've had so many crashes because I'm just the worst motorcycle rider in the world. 
but I've never had any serious injuries. And then I arrived in Tehran and the place that I'm staying, um, I sort of arrived sort of two nights ago into my room and didn't realize that the the floor was completely flooded with water. Um, what I've now figured out is the radiators seem to have broken and it's just flooded the whole room. So I walked into the room, slipped and crashed down on my arm and I now um, can't move my arm. So I'm stuck. I can't ride the bike either. So I'm in the process of trying to get um, an x-ray done tomorrow, hopefully. And fingers crossed, it's not too bad. Um, so yeah, we'll see. <laughs> So what do you learn from this, Ben? Do you, you learn that um, that travel is not dangerous, but hotel rooms can be really dangerous? Exactly. It's funny, the associations that we make too, because you look at that and you know it's just one of those things that happens. But if it had been a different incident, if, uh, I don't know, if somebody had held you up or something like that, it would be very easy to connect that and make the assumption that, hey, travel's dangerous. <laughs> exactly. And people, I mean, the, the even funnier part is that everyone back in England and all these people message me saying, oh, don't go to Iran. Don't go to the Middle East. It's so dangerous. You're going to get injured. You're going to get hurt or you're going to die. And I was like, no, trust me. These, the Mion, these places are totally safe. And then I come to Iran. <laughs> they were right. And the first, they were so right all along. I was really hoping to prove it wrong, but I've completely failed. So, yeah, there goes that one. Well, those radiators, are, they are dangerous things for sure. You know, they're, they're oh, horrible. Yeah. <laughs> they, are, they are lethal. And everyone who says that riding a motorcycle is, is dangerous and you're going to get hurt, well, I think the bike's probably safer than, than the hotel room. <laughs> Well, as you mentioned, you're 22 years old um, and, and you're on a trip. Let's go back to when you were 17 and sort of, I, I think it all started at this point when you were 17. Yes, exactly. When I was, when I was 17, I was just a normal, a normal kid. I was in high school um, and I was sort of getting ready to, it's been my final year, getting ready to go to university. Um, so the initial plan was, well, I was kind of torn between going into teacher training and becoming a, a primary school teacher. Because uh, I've always loved working with kids because I've sort of had many jobs. Sort of, one of them was sort of teaching kids of tennis and music and whatnot. And um, so that was one of my sort of routes I was going to go down or possibly go to college to study drumming because uh, I love I love music. So that was my plan. I was just a normal kid in school and everything was sort of going well. And then I, I got my, my car license when I was 17. And like most stupid young boys, I was a bit of a, a boy racer and was went way too fast and I was showing off one time um, and I had two, two of my friends in my car with me, two girls, and I was going really, really quickly down these small country lanes in, in North London. There were some people in the road and I just sort of took the, the turning too sharp and just lost control of the car and we were just spinning down this road and it was, it was terrifying. I mean, I remember sort of, I remember sort of blacked out for a second. I remember waking up and I didn't know if what happened, if the girls were okay, if if I'd hit anyone in the road or all I knew is that the, the front of the car seemed to have disappeared. It's sort of been ripped apart by this wall we'd hit. And, um, yeah, after that, everything just sort of, I saw, I just, everything fell apart. I was just, the police said, you know, you're really lucky to, to be alive. Um, I was taken to hospital with a sort of in a neck brace and luckily my neck was fine, but it was just, the whole thing was sort of a bit of a, it was all too much for me. And I found out afterwards that the girl in the back seat had only put a seatbelt on literally seconds before we crashed our pure coincidence um and if she hadn't done that she could have been sort of thrown straight out of the, the windscreen she could have been killed instantly or could have killed us and all of these things kept playing in my mind and I thought I could have killed someone or I, I could have been killed myself and I've I've never seen the world and it sounds really cliche but I realized that life is too short and I'd only ever been to France um with my family on holiday that was the first I'd ever been 
So I thought, I got out of hospital and thought, I need to see the world. And uh, I, yeah, so I just, I didn't tell anyone what I was planning, didn't tell my family, but I started getting bits and bobs from Amazon, rucksacks and, and things, and, uh, and then booked my flight to, uh, to Asia. Um, the plan was to go to, basically the plan was to go as far away from England as possible. So I thought I'd go to Australia, but I thought, oh, well, let's stop off in Asia on the way. And uh, so that's what I did. Um, I told my family a few days before and I, I thought I was doing the right thing. I thought if I tell them I'm leaving, then they'll get really sad and worried. And so I thought if I leave it to the last minute, they, they can't worry. But it turned out that was possibly my worst mistake ever because <laughs> then I didn't have much time to say goodbye. Um, and that was it. I then just, I then left. And uh, sort of that's, when, that's how it all began for me really, all because of that car crash. That's why I ended up getting the travel bug and, uh, and flew to Asia. Um, and yeah, and yeah, I, was, I just wasn't really thinking clearly after the accident. And I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I'm a skinny little, <laughs> skinny little guy um, and I've got quite a young face. So I look like a 10 year old um, <laughs> child, um, even now. So when I was 17, I probably looked like a, an eight year old. Um, but, um, <laughs> so I'm not, I'm not very, you know, I'm not strong and not threatening. So to go off by myself at that age to Asia with no clue what I was doing was quite a, now I look back, I mean, I don't know what I was thinking, but it, I mean, it turned out to be the greatest thing ever um, and, and completely, has completely changed my life in ways I, I've never imagined. What did your parents say? Well, <laughs> so as soon as I, um, I told my mum that I was leaving, bear in mind, not only a, few, sort of, well, a week or so before, um, I you know, said to, they, they had a, a phone call from the police saying, come to hospital, your son's been in a car crash. They get to hospital, see me getting pulled out of an ambulance in a stretcher, the neck brace on, unable to move. And then, I, and then I suddenly say that I'm going to be leaving the country and have no, no idea when I'll be back. Um, yeah, my mum wasn't, she wasn't too happy with me, um, <laughs> as you can imagine. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and my dad just sort of didn't say anything. He was just sort of, sort of silent. He sort of just sort of stood there like, oh, trying to sort of process it all. Um, and when my sister came home from work and she heard that I was leaving, she just burst into tears and ran out. Um, and yeah, it was, when, I, when I look back, I was a very, I was a very bad 17-year-old. It wasn't the, the best thing for me to do. I mean, it, in the long term, it was incredible. But at the time, it was, yeah, it was pretty selfish and probably not the nicest thing to do. But now my parents are so, so proud and they realise actually that it was a blessing in disguise. Uh, and they're completely sort of behind me now. But um, yeah, at the time, it was, yeah, it was a bit, a bit of a shock. And I also didn't tell any of my friends as well because I felt so guilty that I'd, you know, almost hurt my two friends in the car. I, I didn't want to tell them when I was going and have like a leaving drinks or goodbye drinks. Um, that was another mistake I made. So I literally just, just left and tell anyone. So people only found out because um, my sister posted a photo of me on Instagram and my, my friends were suddenly like, what? He's, he's gone to, to Asia? Like <laughs> they were just <laughs> completely shocked. But you quit school too. Yes, so I, I quit my job. I quit school and delayed any, any plans I had of going to university and basically just, just left everything. I basically just sort of fled the country, really. Um, and that was another thing, you know, everyone said, no, don't leave school. You can't succeed in life without school. You'll never, you know, be able to do anything in life without your qualifications. But I just, I just, had, I just had to leave. I just couldn't face going back to school and seeing my friends in the same class as me um, after what I could have done to them. I just felt so, so guilty. Oh, I see. So you actually, no, so it was right at the accident. You, you, you had the accident, you get out of the hospital and then you leave. It's that quick. Oh yeah, it was, it was quick. Um, it was, it was, it was like a whirlwind effect. And, uh, 
I mean, I, I left so soon, I, I didn't have time to get all my jabs done as well. So, which is probably another stupid thing on my part. Um, and yeah, literally just, just left. Um, it was just, yeah, it was, yeah, it was pretty, pretty mad, but, uh, I'm glad, I'm, I'm, I'm glad I did it. <laughs> so what was your plan? That, I actually had no plan at all. Um, I arrived in Bangkok and got off the plane and headed into the, the centers of Coastline Road, which is like the touristy area. I had no guidebooks, had nothing, no idea what I was doing. But, um, and I'd never been to a beach before. I'd never been to like, I'd seen films with these beautiful sandy beaches and palm trees and all this, but I'd never actually been to one myself. So I went into, um, I went into a agency and said, hey, can you take me to a beach? And they were like, what? I was like, yeah, I want, I want to go to a beach, like a tropical island. They were like, oh, well, if you book your scuba diving course with us uh, for 300 pounds or so, we'll give you a free boat and a free bus journey down to um, the island of Koh Tao in the Gulf of Thailand. Um, and, you know, you'll get free accommodation for the first week of your scuba diving course. Um, and I was like, sounds perfect. So I paid 300 pounds and got the free boat and bus and the free accommodation down to this island that I'd never heard of. And then I found out that actually the... But the the uh, the bus and the boat was only probably three or four dollars. <laughs> I was gonna say it sounds like a bit of a sales pitch to me. <laughs> so I basically got basically got con there, but actually it was it was another blessing because I'd never scuba dive, didn't know anything about it, but I paid for this course. So I thought, well, I might as well do it, and I did it, and I absolutely loved it. And then so I did the after the I finished the uh, the paddy open um, open water. I then did the advanced, then the rescue, and started the dive master, which then means you can sort of go out and take groups of people out scuba diving and and basically get paid to do that. And that's what I did. I ended up living on this island for a few months, um, just literally just scuba diving, and it was just the most incredible thing. Until after a few months, I suddenly realised that I'd left England to travel the world because I'd almost died and wanted to see the world, and I'd spent. The first, so the first few months of my travels in one place, and that was when I decided to to sort of set off and explore. Um, and uh, I learned to ride a moped on the island, sort of helped me get around to all the different dive sites. And I loved, I just loved the life on two wheels. So when I got to the mainland, I picked up um, an old Honda One Two Five and just headed up. So from Singapore, Malaysia, Thailand, up to the Burmese border, and then across to Laos, Cambodia. And Vietnam, um, on on this on this bike, and I ended up getting through quite a few bikes because you can't at the time you couldn't get your bike from uh, Malaysia into Thailand, so I had to ditch the bike at the border, walk across the border, buy another bike, and you know I was 17 years old. I'd worked since I was 10 years old, so I had loads of money saved. So I was just spending money like it was nothing. I was I was crazy. <laughs> so I had I had a perfectly decent motorbike. That I just ditched at the border, and you just walk away from it. Border, yeah, just left it and walked, bought another one. But I mean, they were sort of only sort of 200, 300 bucks to buy these bikes. Now I'm like, well, that is expensive. But because, you know, when you're traveling, every little bit of money helps. But sure. at the time I was like, oh, whatever. So I did, so I just, I got through quite a few bikes um, over this course of this little journey. But I just loved it. I fell in love with the bike and um, reached Vietnam. I loved Vietnam. And so I ended up uh, settling down in Saigon, got an apartment there, ended up living there for a year. Uh, and even though I know nothing about motorbikes, I ended up working with a local Vietnamese, um, sort of, he was like a student, uh, in Saigon in Ho Chi Minh city, but he was also an amazing mechanic. So together with him, we would find old bikes, which had been abandoned and whatnot from the Vietnam war, you know, and these old Honda SS fifties from 1967, 69. And we'd find these old bikes, restore them. Well, when I say we, I say 
key he he restored them. I just sort of found people to buy them, <laughs> um, and I I did the like the upholstery and the the frame and whatnot um, because I'm the worst mechanic ever. Um, so and that was all we did. And we sold these bikes to expats because um, lots of people like they like to do the Top Gear route, you know, the Saigon to Hanoi route. And then in my spare time, I was teaching English at an international school and a few other schools, and that was sort of my life for a year. And while all my friends were still back in high school, studying to get ready to go to university. So it was complete, crazy sort of contrast from my life back home. Did you keep in touch with your friends? Or did you get back in touch with your friends once you're on the road? Well, it's actually funny you should say that because when I left, I, well, I just wanted to get away. So I kept off social media completely. I just, I just basically didn't log into Facebook or Instagram or any of that stuff for basically the whole time. So I had loads of photos, but I didn't share anything. So none of my friends really knew if I was alive. Um, uh, I finally FaceTimed my family after about, I think nine months or 10 months or so into my trip. I finally FaceTimed my family and they would put me on speakerphone. And when I said hello, they burst out laughing because I'd been teaching at the uh, Australian International School. And I don't know how, but I'd picked up an Australian accent. So when I, so when I Skyped home, I'd, I didn't realise I had this accent. And they just thought the whole thing was hilarious because they hadn't heard me speak for, you know, almost a year. So, but yeah, so I just kept away from everything. And it was, that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to get away from everything back home and just basically just enjoy life on the road. Um, and yeah, it was just, it, it was the best therapy really ever. After my crash and all I've been through. It was just the most amazing, amazing experience ever. How'd you end up in South America? Oh, well, I mean, after I loved, I loved my life in Saigon. It was amazing. And I've still got very close friends who are still living there. Um, but I realized that if I don't leave now, I'm, I'm never going to leave. And there's expats I know who've been there for 10, 15, 20 years. And they only planned on being there for a few weeks. And I thought that could be me. And I, I need to see more of the world before I get settled. So... I thought let's let's go to South America and let's do another let's do another motorbike trip. So the plan was to fly to Colombia, get uh, another motorcycle in Bogota, and then ride down to Ushaya in Argentina. Um, and uh, so that was the plan. I, I left my life back in in Saigon and got rid of the apartment and flew to um, flew to Colombia. And I got an old another old sort of Honda One Two Five, and that's actually. That's another reason why I, went, why I went for the Honda for this trip is because everywhere they seem to have Hondas. They're just the most, the best bikes ever. Um, but um, yeah, so I got another Honda 125 and started making my way south. Um, before I even left Colombia, I had um, a pretty bad crash in Colombia. But I got back on the bike and then in Bolivia, I had an even more serious crash. And I could just completely shredded the, basically all the skin on my leg um, and ruined the bike. Uh, and that is the last time I'll ever wear flip-flops and swimming shorts when I ride a motorbike. <laughs> um, it's it's crazy. Yeah, it's crazy. When, when people go to Asia or whatever, or South America, and they, you suddenly think you're invincible and tourists come and we, we get on these mopeds or bikes or whatever and we sort of just ride around in, in nothing. But you just wouldn't do that back home. But for some reason, you get to these holiday destinations and you suddenly think you're invincible. And that was me. I thought I was invincible until it happened to me. And now I'm, even when it's crazy hot, I'll always now be fully, fully protected because that was awful. Um, but luckily, actually, I met a, an Australian doctor uh, who was backpacking. And she, and cause I, couldn't, I couldn't go to hospital in Bolivia because I had no insurance that covered me for riding a motorbike. 
So, and I couldn't afford the, the fee. So this doctor basically just stitched me up and I basically owe her my life. Um, and I actually got in touch with her yesterday to ask her for advice on my arm. So she's basically my guardian angel when I travel now. <laughs> um, but so yeah. she just, she just fixes you up as a favor. She happens to have some <laughs> sewing material with her. <laughs> yeah. So she was on, I think she was on sort of a year sabbatical or so from the hospital in Sydney and was given a year to travel. And it just worked out perfectly that I happened to meet her just after I'd crashed my bike. So it was literally the, oh, you, you, you couldn't write it. It's just perfect. So you, you, you said you crashed in Colombia, you crashed in Bolivia, and that's the bad one there. At this point, you, you don't have a license to ride a motorcycle and you have no training. I have absolutely no training at all. And so I basically just, if the police stops me, I would just give them a bit of money um, and they seem to be happy with that. And I learned in... When I was in Saigon, I used to wear sunglasses when I rode and, you know, and I'd wear the poncho that all the locals wear just to try and blend in and try and make myself not look like a, uh, a traveller. Although saying that when you've got a backpack strapped to your, to your, to your bike, it's kind of difficult to, <laughs> to, uh, to blend in. But, um, but yeah, that was it. And I mean, I had no idea what I was doing, um, but it all just sort of, I just sort of winged it and it all just sort of just seemed to work out. Obviously, I, I didn't know anything about this carne buff. Because um, all the countries seem to be, I seem to be, be going through fine um, until obviously until Bolivia when when I when I crashed and then had to finally resort to to buses because I just my leg was in such a bad state that I just couldn't ride or walk anymore and that ended up being another another blessing actually again because I bumped into two uh, German bikers on um, on a GS and they were doing the Alaska to Argentina trip um, and. I'd always been on small bikes. It's something big bike with their panniers and all this. It was, oh, I was for me. It was so exciting, um, and oh, they were telling me stories and showing me photos. And I just thought, wow, I've I've got to do something like this one day. That just looks amazing. What looked amazing about it? The bike, the the idea of the route. What was it that really got you? Oh, it's going to sound bad, but for me, it was the whole you know the whole BMW with the you know with the Touratech panniers, the whole, all that you know. It, it was a sort of it just looked for me, I was, I was young. I thought, oh, that looks so cool. I want to do that. That looks really cool. So that for me initially was sort of, I think the thing that drew me to it. Um, but then I started hearing their stories and, you know, just hearing about what life is on the road when you're doing a big overland trip. Um, and it just, I, th- I mean, I, I had some cool stories on my trip, but I mean, what they'd been through was just another level. It was just unbelievable. And, you know, crossing the Darien Gap and whatnot, it was just, oh, I thought I've, I've got to do this. I had no idea what sort of anything about what bike I'd get or anything because at this point I knew nothing about motorbikes still. I'd just always gone for whatever whatever bike I'd find on the street. Um, but uh, yeah, it was so inspiring. And then I got into um, an overnight bus and I'd never been on a sort of overnight bus before because I'd always been on, on, on my bike. And I bumped into this British uh, backpacker, a traveller, and he was actually a cyclist, um, a really keen cyclist. And it was an overnight bus. I had no idea what to do. I wasn't tired. And he said, listen, do you want to watch, watch a film? I was like, okay. And he said, have you seen The Long Way Around? I said, no. And he said, well, you should watch it. So he, he put on The Long Way Around. And after the first episode, he sort of fell asleep. And I was hooked. And I watched them all. And I was like, this is, what the, I mean, I meet these two German travellers. Then I watched this series I'd never heard of. It was just, it was just amazing. And then so the next, when we arrived the next day, Henry, the, the, the British cyclist, he was saying that he was planning a bicycle trip. He wanted to do a big overland trip. And I thought, that, that looks cool. That, that sounds quite good. I've always done bikes. Maybe I'll try a bicycle. So I said that I would join him. 
So when I finally made it down to Brazil and made it back home to, to London, the plan actually was to, to, to get a bicycle and, and do a bicycle trip with, with Henry in, in a year or so. So I got a bicycle out of my shed and um, I cycled down my road. But I only got maybe 100 meters or so before I basically just collapsed on the floor <laughs> out of breath. And I was like, yeah, the, the bicycle is definitely not for me. So I wheeled it back and thought, right, let's, let's stick to motorbikes. So, so, so you're um, you're a motorcyclist because you're too lazy to ride a bicycle. That's basically <laughs> what you're saying. <laughs> that's pretty, that's pretty much true. Yeah. Well, and so now, when I when when I meet cyclists on the road now, I have so much respect for them, and I, I, and I feel so lazy every time I see them. I'm thinking, you guys are, are are just unbelievable. I have so much respect for them and what they do. It's awesome. Now your plan is, of course, to ride a motorcycle. So what do you come up with? Where are you going to head? Well, that was it. I couldn't, I couldn't choose a route. I knew I wanted to, uh, to do an overland trip, but I didn't know where because you've got so many options. You've, after watching the long way around, you know, going over Russia and then over, you know, from Vladivostok over to the States, you've got that route and you've also got, you know, the Alaska to Argentina, you know, maybe buying a bike over there or shipping a bike across. Um, and I'd actually, I'd never toured Europe. I'd done Asia and South America on a bike. Well, almost South America on a bike, <laughs> but I'd never done Europe. Um, so that sort of, sort of attracted me as well because most people, the first thing they do is do Europe on a bike, which for me, it was like a new, a new thing. So also the stands and the Middle East, all these places I wanted to see, I just couldn't decide where to go. And then sadly, sort of about a month or so after I returned to England, a really, really close friend of mine uh, called India, uh, she passed away and she uh, had ulcerative colitis um, and she suffered with it for eight or nine years. Um, hers was quite a rare case. She ended up getting cancer, which then spread very quickly and sadly she passed away at only 22 and that really really hit me and that was a really sort of that was a really tough time and I suddenly thought I still want to do this do a trip but I want to do something good I've you know I've done these trips so I want to actually you know give something back and do something good for once so I thought why didn't I ride because her name was India why didn't I ride my motorbike from from London to, to India to raise money for India for Crohn's and Colitis UK for the, for the charity and to raise awareness as well and so that was that was the plan. And and then my sister at this time was living in Australia and um, I hadn't seen her for a, for a little while. And I thought it's quite funny when you start looking at maps, suddenly the world gets smaller and smaller. So I looked at the map and looked at India and looked at Australia and I thought, you know what? They're not actually that far apart. I can just I can just keep going. So, <laughs> so I thought after India, I'll head over into maybe into Burma, Thailand, Malaysia, Singapore, Ireland, hop through Indonesia to East Timor and then ship from East Timor to Darwin and then I've made it to Australia. I can see my sister and that'd be quite a cool thing. And then I thought, oh, while I'm in Australia, I'm actually quite close to, to South America. And I've, I really want to finish, you know, the trip that I didn't manage to finish before. Um, so I thought, oh, why don't I ship to New Zealand and then to Australia, uh, then to Argentina, and then, you know, then we'll work my way back up South America. Um, and, you know, Central America looked quite cool. And as did North America and Canada's always be my dream to ride across Canada. Um, and so I thought, let's, let's do the all the Americas. And then maybe after that, I can then head, hop over to, to Russia through the Stans. And then maybe Scandinavia looks quite interesting as well. And then obviously then we'll finish off with Africa. Um, hopefully by then I'll know what I'm doing and I can do a whole loop of Africa down to South Africa and back up again. And this, this, this sort of world trip suddenly came about. Um, I don't really know how it happened. It just sort of just happened and... And then I sort of thought, I need to get, I need to get to work. I need to start saving. 
And obviously with no qualifications, it's quite difficult for me to get a, a real job. So I ended up getting a few jobs in retail. So I picked up a, a shift at um, Waitrose, which is a, a supermarket in London. But I wanted to try and yeah, you know, maximise my income as quickly as possible. So I then got an, another job at Apple um, in central London. So, yeah, I, so I'd, I would wake up at three o'clock in the morning and head down to the supermarket to do the online deliveries um, to get all the groceries ready to put into the delivery van and deliver all the, the food um, to the online customers. So I would do that. So get up at three o'clock, do my shift, finish at 11 o'clock, then get the train into central London and did my full shift at Apple from 12 o'clock right up until nine to 10 o'clock, get home back to North London where I live just before midnight, have some dinner, get two hours sleep and then do it all again. And it was just, it's kind of, it's funny what, um, what you can do when you really, really have a goal and want to do something. Um, and yeah, and that's what I did for 20 months or so. That's a long time with very, very little sleep. Oh, it was absolutely. And even now it's still actually affecting me now. I've, um, it's, I was just constantly run down. I was constantly ill. Um, it was just, it was the worst of almost two years of my life. Um, by far, it was just awful. And I was delirious. I'd get home from work and I, I, my parents would speak to me and I wouldn't have a clue what they were saying. I would just, I wasn't thinking. Um, and I'd have a 30 minute nap on the train between, you know, North London where I live and central London. And that was, that, that was a bit of a booster as well. But it was just, it was, I was basically just running on adrenaline the whole time. And, you know, amongst all this, you know, also sort of looking at the, what visas I might need. And, you know, it was just nonstop. And I was, I was doing this seven days a week. Um, you know, on my day off, I would then do overtime. You know, I would pick up extra shifts at the other job just to try and maximize the money. Um, yeah. It, yeah, it was, it was pretty, it was pretty crazy. And obviously I had no bike license as well. So... Uh, all this going on, I also had to try and do my my bike lessons to try and pass my test. Um, because obviously, in, you know, I learned to ride in, in Asia and there's no rules. You just sort of get on the bike and just go. And it just sort of somehow works. Um, whereas in London, you know, if you're riding in England, I didn't realise that if you're riding a motorbike in, in London, you have to stop at red light. Um, <laughs> I wasn't, <laughs> I wasn't, I wasn't used to this. It was really strange. Normally you just go onto the pavement and just sort of go through the, the corner cafe or whatever and cut the corner and, you know, head off on your way. Um, but you didn't get your license on the first try either, though. Oh, I failed my theory and my practical, both of them. I failed them three times each. How can you fail the theory? I don't understand that. I mean, you, you're studying beforehand or, or is it because you're working so much? I mean, you're saying this is the worst two years of your life. I mean, I don't even know. I mean, when I, I passed my car test, you know, my theory and my practical for the car first time. Bear in mind, I was an awful driver, um, which is probably why I crashed my car. But I still passed it. Yet when it came to the bike, I somehow failed it. <laughs> <laughs> I finally got my license and was able to start looking at a bike. And obviously, you know, after seeing the GS in Bolivia, I instantly went to the BMW, as I think many people do. I, you know, I looked at the 1200 and, you know, I'm, I probably weigh less than a 10-year-old girl, so I decided the GS1200 was probably a bit too big for me. <laughs> um, so I, I then looked at the F800 GS, but um, even that alone was, was quite big, and I also looked at the, the Triumph Tiger, 
Um, and all these, these they, they were just so big and let alone without all the gear on as well. Because um, I went to the dealership and the guy at the Triumph dealership, he couldn't even get the, he struggled to get the, the Tiger 800 off the center stand. And I was thinking, and he was a big guy. So I was thinking, how am I going to do it if I'm in the desert or something? Um, Not so a good I demonstration by the salesperson. <laughs> <laughs> he should have had that down pat. <laughs> and, um, but yeah, so I just didn't know what to do. I was, I was, I wanted to, in my mind, I wanted to have the cool, you know, adventure bike, you know, like with the panniers and all kitted out. That was sort of, that was in my head. And I was so caught up in that, you know, in the whole adventure sort of motorcycling world. But anyway, then I went to this uh, seminar in London where Austin Vince and Lois Price were speaking. And obviously we both know how much Austin loves his small bikes. <laughs> We've had him on the show. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes. And so I, was, I told him my predicament and he said, where do you live? I said, I live in North London. He said, well, I'm in Uxbridge. You're only 10 minutes from me. I was like, oh, sweet. He said, come round to my house. I'll take you out riding. You can take this Honda CRF 250 and I'll take out mine. So I was like, sweet, this is great. So I went to his place. Um, and before I, he, before we left his little yard, he put some cones out and um, made, me, made me do an obstacle course just to make sure that was <laughs> It's <laughs> funny you say enough. that because as you're telling the story, it's running through my head. He has no idea your riding experience to, to this date. <laughs> Obviously, he's, he's a little more on the ball than what I gave him credit for. <laughs> Exactly. I think he just took one look at me and thought, this guy is a complete idiot. I mean, I had a man bun with a bandana on and like this, this oh, I was, I had a, it was a very bad phase of, in my life. I didn't get a haircut for quite a while. So he probably thought this guy's an idiot. Um, so I managed to just about navigate this figure of eight obstacle course, which was terrifying, especially because it was Lois's bike. And finally he said, right, let's go. So we he headed off and sort of hit, hit onto the, the bridleways, um, you know, around sort of just along the M25 motorway. Um, to, along the canal and whatnot. And I'd never been off-road before, but I didn't want to tell Austin this. I wanted it to seem, you know, really, you know, bikery and macho and cool. So when I got onto the bike, I was terrified. I was like, oh my word, I'm going off-road. But as soon as I got off-road, I felt so comfortable. I was like, this bike is amazing. It's so light. I actually feel in control. And, I, I, and straight away, I thought, right, this is the bike for me. I've, I've got to get it. And that, so that was it. And um, thanks to, to Austin's contacts with Honda, um, said they would help me out and save me a bit of money with the bike, which was just incredible. Because um, um, obviously every deal helps when you're doing a trip like this. Um, so that was great. Um, and then that was it. So I, I picked up my, um, my, my brand new Honda CRF 250. And uh, then it went, went straight to Austin's workshop and we set to work modifying it and drilling holes into my brand new bike. And <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was great fun. It was awesome. And all this is while you're doing these multiple jobs and working these ridiculous hours. Oh, yes. Yeah, it's a miracle, actually. I, I managed to pass my bike test and actually stay on the bike when I went trail riding with Austin. It was just, it was, and this is actually thanks to you. So when I got down to Waitrose, I would start my shift and I'd walk around the supermarket with my little scanner, you know, with, with the customer's order on it and just basically just walk around the store taking um, food from the shelves to put it in the basket to put it into the van. And that was what I did, um, which is not the most exciting task in the morning. No. <laughs> but I used, to, I used to listen to Adventure Rider Radio every single morning at, during my Waitrose shift. Um, and it's really, it's, uh, I, you have no idea how grateful I am to you guys. You literally, I, I probably wouldn't have made it through without you. It was just, 
every morning I'd, and it, it kind of woke me up and I'd be alive and awake for the day. And I was thinking, you know what, this could be me soon. I'm going to be on the road. And so I'm eternally grateful to you guys. And I can't wait to get to Canada and see you and buy you a beer or, or a few. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. While you're doing all this saving and all this working, you didn't tell your friends that you're, or anyone else what your plans were then. Yeah, so I, I'd spoken to some, some overlanders and they actually said, don't tell anyone your plans until you're all set. And because as soon as you tell people, you know, what you're doing, they will start filling you with doubt and worry. They, they don't mean to do it. It's, it's just because they look out for you. You know, they'll say, you know, what happens if you break down in the middle of nowhere or you get attacked or your phone gets stolen or, you know, you have a, an accident or something. You know, people will just naturally, they go straight to the worst and they ask, you know, what's going to happen in this situation? And it starts to make you sort of doubt yourself. So I thought, I'll keep quiet and I'll just save and save. And all my friends, you know, they knew that I was doing all these crazy hours, but no one knew why. Um, and eventually I talked to my family, you know, a few months before and said, listen, by the way, this is actually what I'm planning. And my dad said, oh, I knew you, you can do something like this. He just, <laughs> <laughs> you could just tell I was planning something big. Um, and by this point, my parents were quite used to my crazy ideas. I decided to not to tell anyone just because I didn't want to, deal with all the, all the questions and the crazy stress because um, I still had, you know, lots and lots of stuff still to do. You need to get your carnet sorted out. But I got all my visas done in the final week <laughs> because uh, even though I had, you know, had all this, you know, almost two years of working uh, and saving, um, I hadn't actually really done much sort of planning until the last minute. Um, I'm a bit of a, I'm pretty unorganized and I leave everything to the last minute. Uh, so... I suddenly realized that I needed a carne as well. So I emailed this company who issue the carnets now in the UK called Cars UK. And I emailed this um, company said, listen, I'm leaving in literally like just less than two weeks time. Um, can you help me out? And they sent it out straight away. They were unbelievable. Yet all these forums and stuff say, oh, you need to get it months in advance. Um, and, you know, I deliberately stayed away from all these sort of forums and overlanding things just because I thought I want to, you know, I just want to do it myself and just not get, you know, too stressed out by anything. And it was the best way to do it. So I got all my visas done in time. I got the carne sorted out. And finally, when I was all set to go, I left my job on my final day, told all my, my work colleagues what I was doing. They were all gobsmacked. And then that was it. I then set off. Um, with, and by, at this point, I still hadn't actually looked at a map. So um, when I got onto the ferry between the UK and France was to get a map out and, you know, choose my route through Europe because I actually hadn't actually looked at a map yet. Um, and, um, but uh, what happened was I ended up actually leaving from the Adventure Travel Film Festival, um, which is an event that Austin Vince uh, set up with Lois. Um, so I, I was set to leave on the Sunday, although a bit of a celebration the night before with lots of people. So uh, I didn't quite make it up as early as I planned. Um, I, luckily, some guy called me up and said, listen, you're supposed to leave in like 45 <laughs> minutes. And I was still in my, t I was, I was still in my tent, um, a little worse for wear. So, <laughs> so I finally got up, packed everything away. And if you look at any of the photos of me from the leaving the event, I don't look very fresh. That's all I will say. Um, I'm, I, I look, basically look like I'm sleepwalking <laughs> so i i uh, but it was such an amazing experience I, I got up to the front and it actually i ended up setting off from the same spot that austin um and his friends set off when they did mondo enduro um 
21 years before. Oh, very cool. Which is the, was, which was the year I was born, which is quite, quite crazy. <laughs> We're going to take just a two minute break and be right back, but stick around. We got a lot more coming up with Ben. He talks about getting away, his plan, and what happens to him when he initially gets on the road. Stay with us. Right here in British Columbia, in the center of some of the best riding in the world, the Red Rock Garage is located in Beaverdale. That's on Highway 33 in southern British Columbia, deep in the Monashi Mountains. The Red Rock Garage is a motorcycle destination in itself. They've got camping, they've got a B&B, service station, fuel, and of course, great coffee. It's why riders head out to Beaverdale, the wild mountain scenery, and the Red Rock Garage. A small coffee shop with a motorcycle addiction. Just a fantastic ride from Washington State as well. Their website, www.redrockgarage.ca. That's a C-A at the end, redrockgarage.ca. And don't forget, when you grab your coffee, make sure to tell them you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. I often get emails or messages with people asking me about the IMS pegs, sort of wondering which peg to choose. And it's a tough question because, you know, it depends on your own style of riding, what bike you're riding, what you want to do with it, what you're comfortable with. Um, I don't think you'll go wrong with any of their foot pegs. They're all cast certified 17-4 stainless steel. They're all incredibly well made, very, very tough pegs and built to the highest qualities. The one that I'm running is the Rally Pegs. The Rally Pegs have a sharp tooth design. They're wider than stock. They're a beautiful peg. I love them. My boots stick to them. I mean, I just feel like I have so much contact. But maybe the sharp tooth design isn't for you. Have a look at their ADV-1 and their ADV-2 pegs. They're a flatter tooth design. They're larger and they sport the ADV moniker, which is a good indicator of the intended use, right? ADV. Um, But if you're wondering, if you don't know, contact IMS. Tell them, first of all, tell them you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio so they know that supporting the show is well worth their while. But ask them, tell them what bike you ride and what you expect and and get their recommendation on what pegs are right for you. And if you can go to a show or something and see them there, well, that's even better because you get to touch and feel. www.imsproducts.com Now back to Ben King. But when you're taking off here and you're leaving on your trip... You have a plan or sort of a rough plan of where you want to go. And what's your time frame? I actually didn't have any time frame. So, well, one of the things I'd, I'd, I'd left with kind of the plan of breaking the world record and becoming the youngest person to circumnavigate the world solo and unsupported. Um, yeah, that's, that's when I first heard of you. I think I saw something maybe on Facebook or something. And I thought that was what you, you sort of left with. You were going for this goal. Exactly. And... So that was sort of kind of the plan was to get this record. I think the person who had it before me was 24, I think, or so. Yeah, maybe 24 years old. Um, and I was, I think, was I just turned 21 at this point? So I had sort of a good sort of three or four years to get this record, which is very doable. Um, you know, because I think to get this record, you have to tick off a certain amount of kilometers on each continent. Um, so you sort of can do a bit and then you can fly the bike. and do, But I... I didn't want to do it that way. I wanted to do the whole thing like fully overland. And so that was a plan. So I set off, uh, got on the road. And I, as I sort of got on the road, I suddenly realized that I didn't want to rush this trip. I was, I was loving life on the road. I mean, it'd be really cool to get, to get a record. And it was, it was very possible to achieve, but I thought 
I don't want to have to rush around and, you know, race to get this thing. I mean, yeah, it'd be cool to have my name in the book, but I thought the experiences I have on the road will far outweigh any, any record. And, you know, these experiences I have will just, will, they'll stay with me forever. And so I thought, you know what, let's sort of, well, it also, it also tied into the fact that I ended up get, getting to Germany and I arrived at the Nürburgring, uh, the, the Formula One racetrack, which I'd never actually heard of before, um, which <laughs> apparently is quite a famous one. I didn't know. <laughs> and uh, I arrived at the track and I fell in love with the place. I ended up staying with Billy and his family, um, this amazing family who are based around the ring. I ended up staying there for over four weeks uh, in this track. Um, and then I set off and sort of headed south through towards the Balkans. And the small print of the Guinness, I think you get disqualified if you spend more than two weeks in, in one in one space without in one place without without making any progress, um, which I think is crazy if you can't spend, you know, because I, I always said if I like somewhere, then I will stay for a few days, a few weeks, a few months, whatever. And that's exactly what happened in the south of France in the small village I found. I spent almost two, three weeks there and then spent four or five weeks in Germany. You know, that's, that's, that's the way I want to travel. I don't have to rush. So. I thought, you know what, that's it, let's scrap that. And I suddenly felt like this, this yeah, it felt amazing. I thought, you know, I can now do this trip in my own time. And yeah, so I reckon, I initially thought maybe maybe four or five years, but it's it's taken me 10 months to get from London to Iran, which is only 24,000 kilometers or so. Well, actually, it's not that, but I've done a, a weird loop. I sort of did like a zigzag around Europe. Um, mm. I went down to the south of France and then went all the way back up again towards Denmark, um, which is actually further north than London. And then I went down again and then up again. And I sort of did a weird, yeah, because I, if I'd planned my route, I probably would have been more direct, but I didn't actually look at a map, so I wasn't sure where, where I was going. Oh, it was great. It was, but yeah, it's the best way to travel. I love it. You you saved up a bunch of money, obviously. That's why you work so much. But you realized that the amount of time you wanted to spend on the road, you, you didn't have enough money for that. So you're working your way through as you go. Yes, exactly. Um, even working all those crazy hours, it's still traveling in the way that I'm doing it in a slow pace. Um, spending more time on the road, it will, it will cost a lot of money. And especially with the shipping costs and whatnot. And the Carne is a massive one. I'll have to extend that soon, actually, the Carne, um, which is another 1,500, 1,600 pounds, almost $2,000 just to just for a document. Um, so all the costs add up. Uh, so yeah, I will be working my way around. You don't have the option to buy uh, insurance for the Carnet in, in the UK rather than putting up the money? Yes. Yeah, so there's, there's two options. You can either pay the, the big, um, the big cost, um, which I think was sort of 6,000 pounds or 7,000 pounds or something up front, And then you get all that money back or you could go for option two, which was sort of fork out, I think 1500 pounds, um, which is a lot less. Um, but then you only get, I think, two or three hundred pounds back. Um, and so I went for the second option just because I couldn't afford to, to fork out um, the, the larger sum. Um, I probably should have done the, the second one. But if I if I had the money, but sadly, I'm, I'm traveling on such a cheap budget um, that I, yeah, I couldn't do that. Um, but uh, yeah, and it's, a, it's only really a few countries that require it. I think it was Iran, Pakistan, India, uh Burma, Indonesia, Australia, and Japan. I think that's as far as I'm aware. Um, oh, Australia so yeah, has it I didn't realize you had to use the carnet to get into Australia. Uh, well, I think so. Too fair. I, I literally don't know anything about I literally just keep learning stuff on the road, so I could be wrong. Um, but that's, that's what I thought. I think you can do it the other way. You can just get a temporary uh, insurance, um, I think, for Australia as well. But I think you can use carnet as well, possibly. 
Now mm. you mention it, I might Google it. <laughs> it could save me some money. <laughs> but but, but it's um, for those who don't know what a carnet is, the carnet is is sort of, um, I, I guess, a bit of an insurance or a passport sort of thing for your motorcycles. When you go into a country, they want to make sure you're not going to sell the bike there. So you have to put up some exorbitant fee. And sometimes it's it's an incredible fee, like two, three times the price or more of the vehicle, the, the vehicle's worth. So it can be quite expensive. And that, of course, is why you need the carnet. Yes. And yeah, and I'll, I'll, when I get to Australia, I'll be, um, I'll basically just stop, stop and work. Um, I'll find, find the job. The first month out of work will, will probably be paying off the carne. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, uh, and yeah, and I'll, I guess I'll just work for, you know, six, eight months, a year or whatever, however long it takes to, to save up the money for the next leg. So I'll find a job in a hotel, a restaurant, bar, or clean toilets, or what, I'll literally will do whatever it takes um, to, 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 to get some more money. Because once you've got the bike and you've got the gear... All you've got to pay for is maybe shipping costs, visa costs, and food and fuel. Um, that's basically it. And because I, I try and wild camp everywhere, I've got my tent, so to save money on accommodation. Um, although in Iran, you, you don't camp anywhere because the people are just so amazing. Um, but yeah, and that's the plan. So work in Australia for a bit, then I'll do the Americas when I get up to uh, Canada. I'll then hopefully find work there again, work there, uh, and then maybe in America as well, if need be. And then... Yeah, and basically just work my way around the world, hopefully. When you're looking for a job, how do you do that? How does that work? I mean, because you, usually you gotta, you're going to have to worry about having a place to live, so you're going to have to pay for that, and you're going to have to go around and search for work. And I, I know there's problems with, with uh, you know, getting work in some countries uh, as far as legalities of it go. But, but how do you search for jobs? You, you, you're obviously, I don't know, are you hitting the internet or are you you're walking around door to door? I actually have absolutely no idea what's going to happen. <laughs> but you did it job. before, though. You, you did it before. You went diving and sort of stumbled into the diving job. Do you, yeah. Is that the sort of way that you, you plan to do it? I think so. I mean, as I've sort of figured out on the road, everything always works out. So, I have, yeah, I have literally no idea what's going to happen, but I'm, I'll, I'll turn up in Australia. I'll have to get the, um, the working holiday visa, which basically is a permit that allows me to work in Australia. Um, otherwise, with the regular visa, you can't actually can't work. So I'll get the... The work visa, um, and yeah, I mean, just even just going into hostels, um, you know, asking if they know, know of any jobs. I've got my sister um, who lives there as well, so she's got loads of contacts as well. Um, and then the beauty of, of sharing my trip on social media is there's people all over the world, in literally every continent, who you know I can, who I can get in touch with, and maybe someone out there will know someone who's who's got a job or you know any sort of restaurant any sort of maybe manual labor or whatever and the, the, the beauty of social media nowadays and how connected we all are is that it's pretty easy i think to to do uh sort of to, to, to do anything um and obviously then there's always the, the expat facebook groups as well that i used when i was in saigon and in south america um there's always jobs being posted on there as well and they actually they're quite a really useful uh, resource as well um but yeah so who knows what i end up doing but i'm, I'm pretty excited actually to uh to see what will happen you mentioned you're riding the Honda CRF250L. What did you do to the bike to modify it? Um, I think you mentioned you put a skid plate on it and, and some bags. What else? So, I obviously I don't know anything about bikes, so didn't have a clue <laughs> what I was supposed to do to a bike. But obviously, taking it to Austin's workshop and it was a great help. You know, he sort of showed me a th- few things I needed to do. So we, yeah, we got the um, we got a skid plate and bark busters from Adventure Spec in the UK. Um, and I started off with uh, soft bags. Um, we had this sort of wire mesh around the exhaust to stop the exhaust from burning the bags. Um, 
sort of taken from a, an old shopping trolley, <laughs> Austin style, <laughs> and uh, which was which which worked out perfectly. Uh, but sadly, that did actually didn't quite uh, work in until I got into Germany, uh, and the exhaust actually burnt a hole through my soft bags, so everything got completely soaked, and I actually ended up having to resort, and I actually installed some. Uh, metal boxes, uh, some panniers on my little Sierra F250 in Germany. Um, and uh, uh, that was, and for me, that was a big change because I'd always, in all my trips, I'd always had soft luggage. Um, and obviously, I suddenly had these hard boxes. And for me, it was, there's obviously a big debate online. You obviously know, you know, the hard soft luggage debate. Everyone's got an opinion on it. It's like tires and oil. <laughs> yeah. And, I, and I, I didn't have an opinion because I'd always had soft. So for me, I thought, you know what, let's... The exhaust, my, I can't use my bags anymore. They've got a massive hole in them. Um, let's let's try these 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 boxes and see what they're all about. So we inst- we took off. Um, we found the the side pannier rack from a BMW GS, and we basically through welding and whatnot and the amazing German engineering, <laughs> we managed to sort of create this sort of custom rack from a GS and installed it onto the bike. And then the other side, we actually had the pannier rack from a Triumph Tiger on the other side of the bike. And then the, the, the sort of bracket, the, the arm that connects the two uh, pannier racks together and stops them from falling in was actually the handlebars from a KTM 690, which we cut to size. <laughs> so literally it was a Honda bike with BMW Triumph and KTM parts to create this rack. And it's been, it's held ever since. It's been incredible. So it's the little Sierra F250 Enduro bike with sort of these, this pannier rack and, and Tech panniers. It's just, it's amazing. Who helped you put that all together? Oh, gosh, many, many people. We had, so there was, there was one side of the rack was actually um, installed by a friend of mine, Mark Pickers, back in England. Uh, and he installed the, I think, the left side. Uh, he didn't have a right side at the time, so we just had the left. That's why we had the, the mesh wire to cover the exhaust. And then I got some, got some guys in Germany helped me out with the, the right rack. And then in Amsterdam, this biker club there, they helped do the welding for the, the rear arm because that kept, it kept the, the welding kept breaking. So they sorted that out. And then I also got some stuff done in Austria as well. So basically it's sort of over four countries to create this rack and it's now finally perfect. And it's held, it's held now for the past, yeah, for, what was that maybe eight months ago, maybe that was, and it's held ever since. And it's been, and, and obviously I crash basically every day on the bike because I'm such a bad rider. And I've, so there's a lot of pressure on the, on the rack and the back and, and the boxes, but they've, They've held, and the boxes have actually saved my legs numerous times. When I was pinned between two buses in Istanbul um, and various other occasions, they've actually saved my legs. So actually, I, I actually quite like the boxes. I'm, I'm probably going to get loads of you know negative <laughs> negative feedback for saying that from everyone who's got soft. But for me, that is perfect because everyone obviously everyone's unique. Everyone travels in different ways, and for me, they're great. I was thinking more of what your parents are going to think if they listen to this and hear you say you're the worst rider ever. <laughs> Wait. My parents know. They, oh. they totally agree. <laughs> well, hopefully that's that's tongue in cheek, and that's not the case with you. But so the boxes hold up, though, even though you keep dropping the bike. And it, somehow, I don't know how, but they somehow, yeah, they, they've they've stayed strong. But they're getting dented up and scratched up, though. Oh, oh yeah, they've got they got a few dents in them, which is all, oh. all part of the fun. But yeah, they've actually they've held, and the bike has been incredible. Um, considering I didn't do really do that many modifications to it, um, except for yeah, as I said there. The bash plate um, and bike busters, and then the front screen uh, from Baja Works. Oh, and actually, one of the I completely forgot about this. The um, IMS 
um, products um, over in the, in I think they're in the state sent me over one of the first sort of prototypes for the for my bike because obviously the the tank they used to do for the CRF when they released the 2017 model I think the fuel pump had changed so it wasn't possible to, to install it on my bike um, and uh, I got I got in touch with them um, when I when I picked up the bike and they explained that they didn't have a, a tank yet they end up as soon as they, they said they were getting to work on it, and as soon as it was done, they sent it out to me, and I, I picked it up in Belgium on my trip, um, which has been an absolute lifesaver. Um, that's definitely one of the mods I would definitely recommend uh, with the CRF is adding the, the larger tank, um, which has been perfect. So they sent you the pro. IMS is great like that. I mean, that, that's really, and, and of course, you know they're a show sponsor as well. Yes, yeah. Oh, yes. They, I mean, they're, they're literally, they're unbelievable. I mean, they, they, yeah, because they initially said, listen, we haven't got a tank for you. And then I think the, is it Scott in uh, the the boss? Scott, right. Um, yeah. He actually emailed, yeah, he emailed me personally and said, listen, we've heard about your trip. We would love to help you out. And so we also, you know, we're, we're designing the prototype. And as soon as it's done, we'll send it over to you. And that's exactly what they did. So wow. I managed to install one of you, one of the first tanks onto my bike. And it was just unbelievable. And I can't ever imagine riding without it now. It's been, it's been awesome. So you get you get the tank, you get the skid plate, you put your your bags, which you change to boxes. Eventually, you get a windscreen on there. Um, anything else? You change the suspension or anything else on the bike? Actually, I put a um, a Hyperpro uh, spring on the bike in Amsterdam, um, and because I didn't, I left everything in stock in England, and I was riding. I think no, yeah, no, in the Netherlands. Yeah, I was riding in the Netherlands, and um, sort of came across some biker guy was just riding next to me on the motorway. He said, hey, follow me. And I was like, okay. <laughs> so I, just, I followed this guy on his BMW and he ended up taking me to uh, this, this Pro shop and got chatting to, to Baz there, who's, and then they've, I think they've currently got Lyndon Poskit in their little workshop, and which was awesome to see. Um, and then, yeah, they ended up sorting out a spring for me as well, which was fantastic to sort of, to deal with the extra weight on the back. Um, oh, just because you're, you're sort of overloaded for the, for the bike. What, do you know what the bike payload is on that? Hmm. <laughs> I probably should have Googled that before I spoke to you. <laughs> I'm, I'm sort of curious because it's a small bike. I have bike. no idea. It, it's probably got a, you know, a fairly small payload and, you, and you're loaded up with a fair bit of gear. What, what are you carrying? Well, actually, it's, I've actually ditched loads of gear. So when I, obviously when I left, I had the two soft bags and then I, had a, I installed a Givy top box because I wanted something with some lookable storage because I left with the soft bags on the side. I thought I need some way of protecting my electrics and whatnot. So I installed this small 30-litre top box on the back. Um, I then had a bag, a massive 30-litre bag between me and the top box. I then had a 35-litre bag on top of the top box. I then had a 25-litre tank bag, and I had my 30-litre rucksack. So this is, I left England with so much stuff. It was crazy. <laughs> um, and I've, I've ditched, I have ditched over 30, 40 kilograms since I've left England, mm. um, it's unbelievable. I mean, I, I can't even imagine how I had that on the bike. And you're not missing the stuff. Oh, not at all. And everyone said, oh, you'll, you, trust me, you'll ditch that stuff. And I, I was thinking, oh, I've done trips before. I know what I'm doing. I'll be fine. But I really, literally, this was nothing like, I was really stupid thinking that because this is nothing like I'd ever done before. This is a big, you know, a, a trip. You know, basically all the trips I've done before were basically nothing. They were just sort of little sort of, little mini hop arounds. This was like, you know, going through multiple continents, going through different seasons, you know, so you've got to pack for winter gear, summer gear. Um, and yeah, so I just left with way too much stuff. And funny enough, my dad said, 
He said, the first thing you'll ditch will be that camping chair. And I said, no, I need, I need my chair so that I can, you know, relax, you know, in my, by my tent. And sure enough, I didn't, act, the camping chair never actually left England. <laughs> I ended up ditching before I got to the ferry. So my dad was right. The camping chair was the first thing to go, as, as with many other things. Um, but yeah, I'm trying to think what I've, what I've got. I've literally got, I've only got, I've got two t-shirts, um, one pair of socks, two pairs of boxes, one pair of trainers, and... I think that is, oh, and uh, I think that's it now. I, ha- I did have a hoodie, but I've ditched all my hoodies uh, along the way because I, as, as it's starting to get warmer and I've left the snow now. Uh, and that's it. And then I've, I've got a few spare parts. I've got my tent, my sleeping bag, my stove, and then electrics. I've got my laptop, my tripod, camera, and that's pretty much it, really. Yeah. It's, 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 and it's crazy. When I think of some of the stuff I left with, it's just... Yeah, it's insane. But it's, yeah, it's, uh, I'm loving it. It's great. It's such a cool bike now. How has the bike been as far as reliability goes? Oh, it has been unbelievable. I mean, for me, as, as I, you know, if something goes wrong with the bike, I will have, I, will, I probably shouldn't admit this on this show, but I would have absolutely no idea what to do. <laughs> um, just because I have no clue about engines. Um, and I, I, I also shouldn't admit this, but I've got two tire irons uh, strapped to my swing arm but I have no idea what to do when I get a flat tire. Um, so I'm hoping I'll have internet that I can YouTube a video or something. Hang on, you haven't got a flat tire yet? Exactly. It's amazing, right? <laughs> oh, wow. My whole trip has been unbelievable. That's great. So I've had, I've had no, basically no engine problems. I've had not had a flat tire. Um, I've got the, so Michelin have been great. And Michelin actually sent me these heavy, ultra heavy duty inner tubes uh, with the Anarchy Wild tires I've got. And the, the, yeah, these inner tubes are unbelievable because, yeah, uh, literally 24,000 kilometers is a long way to go, 10 months on the road, and still no flat tyre. So hopefully, fingers crossed, it will, my luck will continue. Mm. Um, if, if I get a flat tyre tomorrow, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to call you up and, and let you know. <laughs> <laughs> Which won't really be surprising considering you're sitting right now with a broken arm, still with nothing on your arm. You haven't even went for your x-ray yet. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Oh, it's crazy. But yeah, the bike is speed, and it's, they say Honda is reliable, and it really... Is lived up to its name. I mean, it's been through because obviously I didn't plan the trip very well. I didn't, most people plan their trip uh, to sort of go through summertime. So now is the season that all the bikers are now starting to leave on their round the world trips and whatnot. Um, and I've actually not I've not seen a single overland motorcycle biker on since I left London in ten months. I've seen lots of cyclists, but no wow. bikers, which is really crazy because lots of them they, they they wait till sort of this time to leave and then they'll head east if they're doing my route. Whereas I didn't know this, that you're supposed to do to sort of follow the weather. So I ended up spending ages in Germany and ages in Europe because I just loved it so much. Finally went through the Balkans in the crazy winter. Um, and yet the bike, it was, the bike was just amazing. Going through feet and feet of snow in minus 15, 20 degrees. I mean, it was just, un, it was, and yet the bike handled it. It was just incredible. It was so good. And then to go, going through the deserts of Iran, you know, the, the bike just seems to handle it all. I, I, I literally can't, and you know, I have some real good fun on with it off road, um, but I've also taken it, you know, through Europe on the tarmac, on going, you know, pretty quick on the roads. It just seems to do it all, and it's only a two hundred and fifty. I just think, I really think, honestly, it is the perfect adventure bike. I mean, all you got to do is ask Steph Jevons. Um, you know, she, she's obviously she's told you how, how amazing it is as well. It's such an amazing bike. Yeah. Well, well, you said everything's been so easy, but you, everything hasn't been completely easy. I mean, you, you had um, you had some trouble with border crossings. I know you leave stuff at the last minute, but you had some uh, when you were going from Turkey into Syria. Can you tell that story? Yes. 
So the plan was to go from Turkey into Syria. Now, all over the news and media, they say, oh, Syria, Iraq, it's all crazy dangerous. You know, you've got to avoid it. You know, you'll, you'll die. But the whole point of my trip, you know, one of the, obviously I'm doing this trip to raise money, you know, for, for charity for India. But one of the main reasons I want to travel is to, is to hopefully show people around the world that the world really is an amazing and safe place and that there really are good people everywhere um, and to hopefully inspire other people to get on their bike and explore these places um, also show people that you don't need to be an experienced rider to to do a trip like this because i am just completely incompetent and i've managed to make it so far so hopefully i'll inspire other people who maybe are a bit worried that they don't know about bikes and stuff so the plan was to go into syria and iraq um because you know I'd, I'd, I'd had messages from people actually in in Aleppo, in Syria, and also in Iraq, who'd said, listen, we'd love to host you, we can't wait to meet you, from inside the countries. And I, I knew that it was going to be amazing. Anyway, so I got down to the border, sure enough, so they said, no, you, you can't come, you can't come past. And so I had to, I hugged the, um, the border uh, of Syria all the way around to Iraq. Um, and it probably was actually a blessing, actually, because there was actually an attack, um, I think it was only 15 kilometers or so from where I'd been uh, the day after I left. Um, it was, and so I think it was pretty, that was probably a blessing. Um, and, but anyway, so I tried to then head into Iraq and got down to the border and literally it was, in, yeah, as you said, there was crazy, so many, so many border crossings. It was unbelievable. Um, they stop you every sort of, every sort of 10, 15 kilometers. Checkpoints. To, yeah. To checkpoints to ask you why, ask you why, why you're there, what are you doing? They, they, they keep saying, why are you here? And I say, I'm just, I'm just, I'm just traveling. And, uh, yeah, so that was um, one, actually one funny, not, it was not actually a very funny story, actually. Now, now I look back, it was pretty stupid, but obviously I got my Irish and my British passport. And the, I was told not to have my British passport on if I went to the border to Syria and Iraq. And I just completely forgot about it. So when I got down to only a few kilometers from the border, I suddenly realized I had my British passport in my, in my pocket. Um, and I was thinking, I need to hide it. So I pulled off the main road into this, into this field and started taking off the fairings of my bike. British. Uh, and anyway, literally then minutes later, this star turns up and these three men jump out and they're like, get away, get away. And they're pointing at this sort of compound area behind me. And they're sort of gesturing the binoculars to their eyes and putting their hands together as though to be locked up. And I'm thinking, what is going on? Well, I found it was actually an army base <laughs> for, for the area. And there I was taking my fairings off and I was trying to hide my British passport. And then they started pointing at the floor saying, you know, saying, you know, about mines, because apparently there's still lots of mines in the area, which again, had no idea about because I hadn't done any research for this. And so they like get up, they, they, even they wouldn't step onto the ground. They, they stayed on the main road while they're shouting to me. So they were like, yeah, get in, get in, get off. So I put the fairings on, put my passport, didn't have time to put the passport away, put the passport in my pocket and got on the bike and headed onto the main road again. I then found out that in that area, you're, you're not supposed to go off road at all and you're supposed to oh. stay on the main roads, which I, which I learned, out, learned out the hard way. But luckily everything was fine. Um, <laughs> hey, you mentioned about being there for the Formula race. When you're at a location and there's things going on like that, do you pay the money and go see it? And, and if you do, what do you do with your bike? Well, I left just before um, the Formula One started, so I didn't actually get to see it, um, which was such a shame. I honestly considered skipping my round visa, staying for the Formula One race, and then just reapplying for it, which would have been, taken months and months, and it's absolute nightmare to get it. Um, but um, 
Yeah, but with yeah, in terms of bike safety, that's what I love about these these hard boxes, um, because I've now I've also ditched my little duffel bag that I had sort of between me and my top box. That's gone. So now all I have is is my two side panniers and my top box. So everything is lockable. I literally stop my bike, take off my tank bag um, with my electrics in, and that's it. Everything is on the bike. And I've got I've got a, a, a disc lock and a chain. I can't believe I've been carrying a chain around for 10 months. <laughs> and I've literally, I've literally used it once, only once. And I, you know what? Now I say this, why have I still got it on my bike? Okay, you know what? Tomorrow morning, I'm going to ditch it. I've decided. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, glad, I'm glad you mentioned this, actually. Um, yeah, carrying this chain and disc lock. And I've literally only used it once. Because what I found is people are, people are good people. You know, I, on Facebook, all these videos keep appearing. Bikes being stolen in London and bike theft is crazy. You know, yeah. back home. Yet these places like the Middle East where everyone's so scared and say, oh, you're going to die, it's dangerous. Actually, I feel safer with me and my bike in the Middle East than I do back in London. I left, I mean, I left my bike just in the middle of nowhere, you know, and I even left my key in the ignition, like in the middle of, in the middle of Baku. And I, I think I also did it again in, in Tbilisi in Georgia as well. I don't know why I keep doing that. And, you know, and nothing happened to it. It's totally fine, you know. People, people are, you know, there are some bad people obviously in the world, but sure. all in all, people are good. And, and that's what I found. And it's been, yeah, so I haven't really had to worry um, about the bike. I, I, I left with a, a bike cover to put over the bike. Because, you know, what they say, if, if, they, if, it, uh, you know, if, if you can't see the bike, no one knows what's underneath. So no one's going to, you know, try and tamper with it or steal it. So that was, that was my, my plan. Um, and then I suddenly realized that actually, like, the bike is getting, looks pretty beaten up anyway. No, no one's going to want to really want to take it. Um, and yeah, and so far it's all, been, it's all worked out well. So yeah, I've, I, sort of, I left my cover on my journey. It's been, yeah, it's been cool. The locking boxes are easy to break open if somebody was really determined. So obviously that just, just the fact that they're locked sort of keeps the honest thief out. Oh yes, definitely. I mean, you could, with a crowbar, you could probably open my boxes in yeah, literally sure. seconds. Um, and if they wanted to, they could literally just lift up my bike and put it into a van. Mm -hmm. And that's always, you know, in the back of my head. But when, it's, when I arrive somewhere, I sort of, you sort of, you, you get like a good impression for a place. Um, I'm not, well, I'd, I'd like to think I'm not as naive and stupid as I was when I was 17 and doing my bike trip. <laughs> Hopefully <laughs> I'm a bit of a better judge of a character now. Um, so I've got a piece of string that I tie from my bike to my tent when I'm sleeping, just in case anyone does, you know, come and take it. Uh, and I've also got my cutlery that I dangle uh, from the Barkbusters. And so if they, someone does try and maneuver it, cutlery is going to rattle and hopefully wake me up. So that's my high-tech secure system. <laughs> um, although actually, now I say this, I've just realized that I don't know why I do that when I do actually have a decent disc lock and chain. Oh my gosh, I'm such an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well. you're, you're in Tehran right now looking for medical attention for your arm that you slipped out some water in your hotel room and <laughs> broke your arm or possibly broke your arm. <laughs> what are you doing for medical insurance? Because recently, I think it was Grant Johnson that had mentioned on our other show, Raw, that um, if you're from the UK and you want medical travel insurance, it's very difficult to get anybody who'll cover you riding a motorcycle. Oh, it's, uh, it's quite funny. You should mention that actually, because I'm, you know how I, I when I was working in London, I was working all my crazy hours. Mm -hmm. I wasn't really in a, a sort of a, 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 a stable mindset. Um, and I actually, I, I honestly don't remember if I have insurance or not. So literally just this, just this afternoon, I've been going through my emails and I've been typing in insurance 
through the search bar trying to find if I have any if I have any emails from insurance companies that may have covered me because I don't remember I don't remember if I have it or not um I honestly don't know how this has happened to me so I mean if not I'm just gonna have to pay the money but it's yeah it's funny you should mention that because literally yeah I honestly (laughs) could not tell you if I I know that I had insurance for the bike in England which covered me for three months in Europe but aside from that, I, I honestly don't know if I have insurance or not. So, yeah, I guess I'll find out tomorrow when I go to hospital and see what they say. So tomorrow, <laughs> though, are you going to be looking for insurance to buy or can you even get it while you're on the road? I, I don't know. I'm guessing they obviously won't give me. They won't give me. I mean, would they give me insurance now? I, I have no ben, idea how you got to find out. <laughs> Medical insurance is really important. <laughs> I mean, hopefully you'll never oh, need gosh. it for anything major. But boy, yeah, you want to have it. Maybe we, maybe, maybe we should redo this segment and for your, for your listeners and say, I am fully covered. Don't worry. Don't go around the world without cover. <laughs> but yeah, I, I, yeah it's, it's crazy. I, um, yeah. I mean, I guess I'm, I'm one of those people that I just, I stupidly think that, you know, that I'm going to be okay. Um, and basically, so far on the bike, I have been okay. It's just happened to be that I've had an accident off the bike, which is just quite hilarious. Um, yeah. Where do you go from here? What's the plan for the stuff coming out? Oh, so from here, I'm going to head, well, once this, once this arm is, is all fixed, hopefully I can head south because um, I've only got, I think I've only got like 10 days left in Iran and I'm currently in Tehran. So on a, on a map, that's quite a long way to go to get down to Pakistan. So I've got, I'm heading down to Pakistan. Well, I'll try and get into Afghanistan if I can. So I'm, I'm not sure the, what's uh, the situation with the visa for Afghanistan. Um, at one point, it was possible to sort of cross the border at a certain point and get a visa like on arrival. Um, but I'm not too sure. All the, in this part of the world, it always seems to change. So we'll see what happens. But if not, um, I'll head, yeah, so from Iran to Pakistan and then up to India. And then I'll do a loop around India, uh, head up to Nepal, to Burma, uh, and then in back into, into Southeast Asia and then sort of work my way down to Australia and hopefully hopefully fingers crossed I've got enough money to to make it there um I'm hoping because obviously you have with with Burma and Thailand now as well uh, with their new new rules you have to have a guide um to escort you you can't go through uh, unattended although saying that I've heard stories of people who can do it without so you never know maybe I'll just wing it and see what happens fingers crossed somehow I think you will <laughs> Ben great to talk to you we'll be following along thank you so much Well, that's 22-year-old Ben King. And you can find out more about Ben, follow his travels by going to Instagram and following The King on the Road. Of course, that link and some other photographs and things are in the show notes for this episode.
I just want to remind you that this episode was made possible for you today in part by Max BMW Motorcycles at www.maxbmw.com, Best Rest Products at www.cyclepump.com, Green Chili Adventure Gear at www.greenchiliadv.com, and Moto Breeze Chain Oilers, www.motobreeze.com. Well, that about wraps up another episode of Adventure Rider Radio, and we sure hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we did making it. Special thanks to our producer, Elizabeth Martin, and to you, the listener. Thank you very much. If you'd like to hear more of our episodes and our other show, ARR Raw, which is a separate show, comes out once a month. You have to subscribe separately for all of this and more. Drop by our website, www.adventureriderradio.com. And this show is built on a model of some advertising and listener support. And we have listener support, but we need more. So if you like what you're hearing and you want to support something you like, which I'm a big fan of, supporting the things you like directly, drop by the website, www.adventureriderradio.com. Click on the support button. Anything $10 or more is going to get you a sticker sent back at you. Anything $50 or more will get you a mention on our Raw show. But we also have our patron set up so you can go on there and you can sign up for a monthly support system. So that's really great because we can count on that each month. Any way you do it, we're very appreciative, both Elizabeth and I. Thanks very much. Time to get out there and ride your bike now. See you next week. I'm Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. Hi, this is David Huff. Um, I'm a motorcycle journalist of many years and um, uh, I'm talking to you on Adventure Rider Radio. (laughs) 